This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, For joining us, everyone. You're listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And Kirk, today we are going to be talking once again about evolution. We'll be responding again to the email from our listener in Liverpool, Nick. So we will get into that in just a minute. I'd like everybody to know that Evidence for Faith is currently available on five stations across the United States, or you can listen to podcasts on iTunes, or check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, Kirk, it's good to have you back. How was your holidays? Uh, they were pretty good, but unfortunately, uh, right before Christmas, I got sick with the bronchitis that seems to be going around the area, and I was kind of out of it for about a week. Oh, that's too bad. Did You you had a good Christmas anyways, though? Yeah, I got lots of presents. Oh, well, that's all right. That makes you feel a little better when you're sick, huh? Uh-huh. Very good. Well, we I filled you in on what we did in your absence. We continued on with Nick's email. So for listeners who are unaware, we had done a series on evolution and talking about the problems with the theory of evolution with neo-Darwinian theory. And it's not that we only talk about the problems and don't give the positive evidences for intelligent design, but this just happened to be a series where we were looking at the problems with evolution. In previous podcasts, we've talked about the positive evidence for intelligent design. And one of our listeners challenged us, and so we offered for him to debate us, but instead of taking us up on a live debate, he actually wound up emailing us about three pages of objections and answers to our views on some of the problems that there are with the theory of evolution. So, Kirk, you and I did page one a few weeks back, and we answered his uh, responses to us, and then Kevin Harold and I last week looked at page two and did most of the things on page two, and I just wanted to finish up because I was a good challenge that he gave us, and I wanted to make sure that we answered all of the arguments that he posed and didn't leave any dangling arguments that somebody might think, ah, oh, they didn't answer this, see, this must really be a flaw in their arguments. So today we're going to pick up on some more from that last page. Now, I just want to make sure everybody knows that here at Evidence for Faith, we don't think that you have to necessarily give up on the theory of evolution in order to be a Christian. There are plenty of Christians out there who believe in evolution, and by evolution, in this case I'm talking about macroevolution, that is, molecules to, to man— kind of evolution. 
that doesn't uh, necessarily disqualify you from being a Christian. And you can become a Christian and you can enjoy all the benefits and wonderful things that come from Christianity. But since Christianity is all about the truth and discovering the truth and finding the truth and being dedicated to the truth, we do talk about this because a lot of people think that evolution is kind of an answer to Christianity, that Christianity can't be true because of evolution. So that's not true, but because people do think that, and if you're not a Christian, very frequently people are evolutionists, then we do this so that we can prove to people that they better rethink what they're putting their faith in and uh, take a, a fresh look at Christianity. So, Kirk, you had answered this email point by point, so I wanted to make sure that everyone got a chance to hear your answers, and, and then I did some research and looked up some of the things that Nick from Liverpool was presenting, and so I have some answers also. So I guess the best way to do this is if you would read what Nick wrote, say I'd say we should do this paragraph by paragraph, and then give your response to that paragraph, and then I'll give my response, and then we'll go on and work through it like that. What do you think? That sounds good to me. Okay, so... I guess I think we really did cover everything until we got to the section under irreducible complexity and lack of transitional forms. There were two paragraphs under that. So I guess if you pick up the second paragraph where he starts out by saying, by the way, and uh, that'll be a good place to start today. Right. And before I read that, I should mention, too, I, I have to make a slight correction. I believe Nick said in his email that he's from Bristol, England, and that he went to the University of Liverpool. Ah, that's okay. So that's where the Liverpool comes in. Right. So he's from Bristol. Right. So Nick from Bristol. Okay. Great. Right. No, that's good, because he wouldn't know who, who he would know. Oh, is that me? <laughs> there must be another Nick from Liverpool they're talking that's, about. That's right. <laughs> okay. Very good. So anyway, uh, he has a section of his email where he talks about, as you said, irreducible complexity and the lack of transitional forms, which is something that we dealt with in our, our previous program on evolution, and he has a little uh, response to that here. And he says, by the way, can you explain why God would give the octopus a superior designed eye to humans, his special species? Now, my response to that was, why not? <laughs> But you might want to go into a little more detail about that. Yes, I will. <laughs> and he says, and whilst we're on the topic of poor design, how does creationism account for the recurrent laryngeal nerve? A silly couple of feet in humans, but a ridiculous several meters in the giraffe. If a creationist theory cannot explain such anomalies, it will fail. Incidentally, evolution accounts for them very well. All right. So now... About the laryngeal nerve, we did cover that earlier, so I'm not going to recover that. Right. But we do want to talk about this octopus eye. Now, this was very strange to me that somebody would think that an octopus eye is superior to a human eye. I mean, I don't know, Kirk, are you having any problems with your vision? Uh, other than the fact that I wear contacts, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, see, what this revolves around is... The concept of how the retina is in the back of the eye. Right. Okay. Now, apparently, Richard Dawkins has made a big thing about that the human eye is designed very poorly. 
And we talked about in the past a little bit about this idea and how we know that this is not true. In fact, if your eyes were designed the wrong way around, you'd have actually very poor vision. So, but apparently in his book, he says that, in, or in one of his books, he talks about the fact that the octopus eye is made with the retina, the cones and rods that det- actually detect the photons pointing towards the front of the eye, and then the nerves that feed the information are in the back. So he claims, apparently, that this means it's a superior designed eye. Okay, well, so let's look at that. Is that really true? Is the octopus eye really uh, better than the human eye? I mean, the only eye that I ever heard of was better than a human eye was an eagle eye, right? I believe the eagle eye has better visual acuity than the human eye. Yes, they're supposed to be able to see like very small animals from like a mile or more away. Exactly. Well, octopuses, I mean, think about it. Octopuses live under the water, mostly dark places. It would have been a real surprise to me if an octopus had a better eye than a human being. And I looked it up, of course. It's totally wrong. This is just a myth of Richard Dawkins trying to create his followers of atheism, just basically lying to them. So here's the data. An octopus eye has about 20 million photoreceptors compared to the human eye, which has 126 million. So Mm -hmm. far more photoreceptors. Its visual acuity in the human is far, far greater than in the octopus. In fact, one of my readings, they were talking about the fact that an octopus mainly goes by movement. He doesn't even use his visual acuity as much as he uses the ability to sense movement so that you can create a prey, you can put prey in front of him, and as long as that prey doesn't move, he can't see it, Hmm. and he doesn't respond to it or attack it. It has to move in order for him to be able to see it. Well, that would also make sense that the the, uh, depths that uh, octopuses, if that's the correct way to say that, uh, generally live, that uh, I would imagine it's pretty dark down there, and it would be kind of difficult uh, to... uh, you know, using the same type of eye that we have it, anyway, it would be difficult to discern something down there that, you know, is not moving and you, you can't see the movement. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, like, why would an octopus have an eagle's eye as an example? I mean, right. it just doesn't need it. Right. So, this kind of so brings, a, brings just, a funny picture to my mind of um, an octopus in a, in a doctor's office sitting there with the eye chart and with a patch over his eye and trying to read the eye chart. <laughs> Yeah, you'd have to move the eye chart so that he could see it. <laughs> there you go. So what is the situation then with the human eye being in backwards? How is it that the nerve cells that feed the information away from the rods and cones don't get in the way of the light rays? Guess what? There's this incredibly complex system of glial cells. They're special modified glial cells which are a type of nerve cell called Muller cells, and these actually act as fiber optic channels. So they're built into your eye is a parallel array of fiber optics, incredibly sophisticated engineering that delivers the light rays through the plexus of nerves directly to the rods and cones. So just incredibly engineered 
for high acuity. And that's why when you're looking at something, you don't see like little spider webby nerves in front of you. You know, you don't see the nerve cells in the way. Right. So uh, it's simply not true. And then he puts this little dig in about God's special species, right? Why, why would God give the octopus a superior designed eye to humans, his special species, claiming that human beings should not be looked at as special? After all, we're just the product of random chance. But I want to pick up something that he mentions then later. Later on in the letter, we'll get to the point, part where he talks about human beings and he says, you ask why we are not better equipped to survive. Well, it is self-evident that we can survive in pretty much any environment against any other species and often at the expense of other species. We are at the top of the food chain. Nothing else is above us. So you see, he has an evolutionary special human beings, right? Special species. Right. Human beings are special to evolution, apparently. So I just thought it was hilarious how, on the one hand, human beings can't be all that special if, if God made them. But if evolution made them, then they're special. Right. They're at the top of the food chain. Well, that's kind of a, a false argument, too. You, you know, you could say the same thing like, well, you know, God made the elephant stronger than human beings. So I guess he must not think much of human beings or, you know, he sure. made the eagle able to fly and we can't fly. So I guess we're not very special. I mean, that that whole argument about... The whole line is fallacious, exactly. Yeah, the whole idea of why wouldn't he give a, a, you know, maybe a better kind of eye to another creature than human beings, you know, using that as an evidence for his non-existence just doesn't hold up. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about evolution and the problems with evolution. We're having a little debate with one of our email listeners who emailed in some responses to us. All right, now, Kirk, I do want to pick up on a statement he made in that same paragraph where he says, if a creationist theory cannot explain such anomalies, and where he's talking about poor design, it will fail. Well, that's not true. (laughs) I mean, just because you don't know why something is designed a certain way does not mean that it's a bad design. And even if something does actually look like it is a bad design, that doesn't mean that it wasn't designed. So many times, I mean, look at a car. I can look at a a car and I can find places where, you know, I think this is a bad design. Now, it might be that I'm wrong, that it actually, there is a reason why it's designed this way. And I just don't know enough about automobiles to know the difference. Right. Or it might be that it really is a bad design. Does that mean that the automobile wasn't designed? No, of course not. Uh, of course not. Right. So, so he's just wrong. If the creationist theory cannot explain such anomalies, it will fail. That's not true. And then he says, incidentally, evolution accounts for them very well. Well, evolution accounts for them very well only in a kind of an ad hoc way, in kind of an afterthought way, because it, evolution answers it both ways. Evolution explains things so well, it can answer anything. For instance, if something's really highly complexly designed, you say, oh yeah, evolution did that. And if, you know, because it needs to, the person needs to survive better with that. Then if something seems to be poorly designed, you can say, oh yeah, evolution did it that way. So evolution is unfalsifiable right. in this regard. And that does mean that the, the 
theory fails. For a scientific theory to be valid, it has to be falsifiable. At the very least, it it makes it a flawed theory because it really doesn't explain very much. That's right. When, When a theory explains everything, then it doesn't explain basic things very well. It's like the why people have rejected Freud's theory of psychoanalysis, because every possible human behavior was explained by the fact that you love your mother and you hate your father. <laughs> so even opposite types of behavior were both explained by the same thing. Right. Well, that means that it's explaining too much. It can't be true because it explains contrary things in the, with the same answer. Right. The same cause explains opposite effects, and that simply can't be true. So you we could have almost, the same problem. You could almost say that it explains everything, but it, on the other hand, it explains nothing. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to the next paragraph. Neo-Darwinism in genes. Okay, he says, Gene mutations will not accumulate if they are not beneficial to the species. Uh, and they certainly will not accumulate if they are detrimental. To state otherwise flies in the face of a vast evidence available. If you were making a claim like that, you need to cite your sources, otherwise it is just a nutty claim. (laughs) The analogy with rust on a bridge or a car falls down because these are not living organisms capable of self-repair and, more importantly, reproduction. Yes, individually we all eventually fall apart and die, but we can reproduce. A car cannot. Hence, this is a very limited analogy that you take too far. Okay. And how did you respond to that? Well, on the the part about uh, genes that are not beneficial to the species, I said, you know, why can't we have these? What do you think causes things like cancer? And, you know, on that subject, since things like cancer and other diseases are not beneficial, why haven't these things evolved away? And then I said, and why do we even die? That's not beneficial to survival, and yet evolution hasn't figured that out either. (laughs) Right, right. And he actually does address that, so we'll get that in uh, later paragraphs. Yes. So, uh, yeah, you know, that, that very first statement that he makes, gene mutations will not accumulate if they are not beneficial to the species. That's simply false. Sure. I I mean, one of the ways, do you remember, Kirk, how scientists were able to determine that all human beings had come from a single mother, which they labeled mitochondrial Eve? Now, what they were doing was comparing the number of mutations that had accumulated in the human mitochondria. So, for people who aren't aware, there's the DNA, which is at the nucleus of each cell, but also in each cell are little organelles called mitochondria, and those also have sections of DNA in them. Mm -hmm. But those all come only from the mother, and unlike the nuclear DNA, which comes from both the mother and the father. So, by looking at those little portions of DNA that have been passed down from mother to child, mother to child, mother to child, on and on, every generation they would accumulate some mutations. So by calculating backwards, they were able to determine that mitochondrial Eve is about 300 generations old. So, of course, that doesn't fit into their evolutionary scenario, but they were willing to report it anyways. (laughs) So the fact is that mutations do accumulate. There's no way to get rid of them. Remember, most mutations are neutral. They don't do anything. 
They right. don't. They neither harm the organism nor do they help the organism. Right. So because of that, natural selection can't weed them out. It can't leave the good ones and get rid of the bad ones because most of them don't do anything. The problem is that many generations later, they will do bad things. And that's why we gave the example of a bridge that builds up rust oh, you know, for year after year after year. Okay, so a little bit of rust doesn't make it fall down, but eventually it will fall down. Right. And so what the science shows is that roughly there are about 300 mutations that are added to each new generation. Now, remember, for people who are hearing this for the first time, if you have just one bad mutation added, or actually, if you have just one mutation added every single generation, the species must eventually fail. The species must eventually go extinct. Because what happens is these mutations damage things. Even if they're neutral now, in the future, they tend to be detrimental. Right. Just because the accumulation of them becomes dangerous, right? Yeah, that's right. But also because the organism will find itself in new environments or with different a new food source, a, new, a different food supply. And now those mutational changes that in the original scenario were not detrimental, now they become detrimental. Right. So neutral, the buildup of neutral mutations is ultimately detrimental. So of those 300 mutations that build up every generation, genealogists believe that between one and three of them are detrimental. Okay. Okay. So for every neutral mutation, there's about, for every, I'm sorry, for every detrimental mutation, there's about 100 neutral mutations. Okay. And for every 1,000 detrimental mutations, there's maybe one good mutation, one mutation that is in some situation beneficial to the organism. Okay. And again, as we've pointed out in past shows, this is actually due to the loss of information in a certain situation being becoming beneficial. Now, this is all really well documented. So, I mean, we talked about it. We even had a geneticist on the, the show. Apparently, Nick hasn't heard that podcast. I'm thinking of Dr. John Sanford, who was a geneticist that worked at Cornell. He was the inventor of the gene gun, wrote a book called Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, where this is well documented. But many other geneticists like Kondrashov and James Crow, who write articles in Science Magazine, Nature Magazine, they all talk about this, the danger of this buildup of mutations, uh, even though they're neutral. So if you want to research it, you can go to a website called genetic.org. That has a lot. But, you know, science and nature, they're always publishing them. Uh, in fact, there was a recent one that I found published in Science in 2010 by a geneticist by the name of Roach. And he has one of the smallest estimates of the number of mutations that come each generation. And he said that it was approximately 70, 70 mutations every generation. So hmm. still, you know, there's this issue of the buildup of mutations. So he's, so Nick is just simply wrong here. What are we talking about here generally uh, as far as a generation, like about 30 years? Well, every, just any time you have children. 
Okay. The next generation. Right. So it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, we were specifically addressing human g- generations. So you're talking probably on average about 20 years. Right. But this is true for all animals. So there's a buildup of mutation for every organism. Okay. Another source that people can look up is a, there's a website called detectingdesign.com where a physician goes over all the data on the DNA mutation rates. And there's lots of sources in there, too. Great. So let's go on with the next uh, paragraph. Okay. Uh, Move down to reproductive success. Oh, you know what? I did see something, another note here that I have that I thought was really interesting. One of the geneticists I was reading talked about the number of children you would have to have in order to keep from going extinct. Okay? Because the idea is that if you pass on detrimental genes to your offspring, if you have more of them, then in just kind of a randomness, some of them won't have as many detrimental and some of them might not have even any. So they, based on the estimates that there are of the number of detrimental genes that are passed on from generation to generation, every adult human woman, in order for human beings not to go extinct, would have to have between 40 children, 40 children per generation that's on the low estimates, up to 10 trillion children per generation in order to avoid going extinct. Holy cow. <laughs> so in other words, what they're telling us is that there is zero possibility that human beings will not go extinct. <laughs> and, and this goes for every other species too, except I believe for um, bacteria. So, yep. So, so let's see. So what are you saying? Is It's guaranteed that eventually we will go extinct or we won't go extinct? Guaranteed we will go extinct unless women are going to start having tr- trillions of children every year or every generation. Wow. Yep. So let's pick up on the next paragraph there. Actually, I guess we did cover that, didn't we? Yeah, I think we covered most of the second paragraph about genes. Yeah, yeah. So he just asked for, you know, can you give evidence of the claim? which we did, obviously. Uh, He says that he was unaware of it. Can you provide some citations? So we did that. So, yeah, I guess I jumped the gun. I I answered that paragraph also. All right, Ed, do you have anything more on that one, on that neo-Darwinism and genes? Nope. Okay, all right. Okay, so his next paragraph is about reproductive success. He says, not much to say about this other than sheer numbers are obviously not what is important. What is important is preserving genes into the next generation and making sure your genes survive, and perhaps it takes more complex organisms to achieve this with greater success. And how did you answer that? Well, uh, I said a couple of things. When he talks about preserving genes, I inserted into his email which genes. You know, how does evolution decide which genes need to be preserved and which ones don't? Right. And then again... Yeah, obviously, it's gonna, he's going to answer that evolution wants to preserve the genes that are beneficial. But how does it know if it's an, an unguided, unintelligent, random process? How does it know one from the other? Well, through natural selection, through animals dying because they have a less beneficial gene than their brother or sister that has the more beneficial gene, then those are more likely to survive. So survival of the fittest, remember, is their answer for everything. That's the kind of non-random part of it. Obviously, if it was totally random, I think they would agree that you're never going to get anywhere. 
But sure. what they think is so magical about evolution is that just by selecting for survivability, you're going to be able to pick out the genes that are good and then everything is going to build up from there. But, of course, that just simply isn't true. But if it were true, I mean, if it were true, it would still be that one of the best ways to pass on those superior genes would be by sheer numbers. So if you look at the definition for natural selection at dictionary.com, it says that uh, reproductive success means more numbers. So he's simply wrong. Again, this is another example of one of our evolutionist listeners, believers, who just doesn't know that much about evolution, and that's why he believes it. We pointed out in the past that there have been studies that have shown that the more you know about evolution, the less likely you are to believe it. And this is one of the areas where it fails, because for evolution to be true, it would have this tremendous selective force that if you had the ability, let's say, Kirk, that we're evolving, and you have a gene line where you have 8 to 12 children every generation, and I have a gene line that has only one child every generation or two children every generation. Guess which one's going to become the dominant gene? Of course, it's the one that's having more children. So why is it then that organisms that are more advanced, say whales, porpoises, human beings, elephants, you know, have fewer offspring? It just doesn't fit with what the forces are that evolution would provide if these organisms were the result of an endless process of natural selection. So he's simply wrong about that. Now, he does say perhaps it takes more than just numbers. So, okay, well, that's true. So if one organism has four offspring per generation and the next organism has four offspring per, per generation and one of them has something superior about it, then, of course, it's more likely for that to prevail. But what if it's competing against a similar organism that produces 400 offspring. Well, the one with 400 is far more likely to succeed even if the other organism only, you know, has something better about it, some kind of genetic trait that's superior. So, sure, it, it maybe takes more than just sheer numbers, but sheer numbers is an advantage, and that's the point we're making. Whereas when we look and see what's happening in the real world, we don't see this effect of sheer numbers that ought to be there if evolution were true. Okay. <laughs> All right, you ready to go on? Okay, let's move on to survivability and aging. This one is an interesting discussion. Uh, he says, you know, he, he refers to us uh, talking about why animals age and die. And right. he says, you state... Evolution could have done a better job at allowing an or organism to survive longer. Better than what? And I replied, better than death, which is not surviving. <laughs> right. And then he says, perhaps evolution has done the best it can. How can you possibly know different? And I said, well, then how can you possibly know different? And right. then he goes on to say, humans can survive into their 90s or even 100s when given good medical care and good diet. This, this seems pretty good to me. And my response to that was, well, I would say that most people who die, no matter what their age, would disagree with you. <laughs> in other words, I don't think even people in their 90s and 100s are, you know, particularly thrilled about dying. 
Right. So then he goes on and he says, our ingenuity has allowed us to extend our own lives, giving some, given something, something given to us by evolutionary processes. And my response was, yet evolutionary processes are completely random and unintelligent. Thus, there is no ingenuity operating there. If survival is its goal, then why hasn't it extended our lives all on its own? How can a random, unguided process even have a goal? Only intelligence has goals. Very good. Okay. And then he says, you ask why we are not better equipped to survive. Well, it is self-evident that we can survive in pretty much any environment. And I said, really? You know, I'd like to see him survive in the Arctic without about, you know, 10 layers of clothes. Right. And uh, he says, we can survive against any other species and often um, at the expense of other species. And again, you know, I'd like to see somebody put him in a cage with a lion and see how long he would survive. (laughs) 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 He says, we are at the top of the food chain. Nothing else is above us, which is the interesting statement you, you know, repeated a little earlier about, you know, he's saying how imperfect we humans are and... You know, we're not that great, and here he's saying we are great. We're at the top of the food chain. (laughs) Right. Yeah, we're evolution's special creatures. Right. Right. And my comment to that was, actually, I said that Jesus Christ actually claimed that God, who created all things, is above us. So we're not the absolute top. (laughs) Right. Yep, that's true. You know, I guess he is, it appears he doesn't know about our past podcast where we've talked about telomerase and what the aging clock in each living cell that controls whether or not it's going to repair itself or die. Right. I was was thinking of that when he was talking about this, because you kind of went through all that about um, how we have kind of a time clock inside of us that decides exactly how long we're going to live. And it's like, you know, if, if the point of evolution is survival, where did that come from? Right. That, that's right. Why is there even a time clock in there? Why is there a clock that says you're going to die at a certain point? Right. Plus, it's so easy to turn off. I mean, we can experimentally, we can do it. So why doesn't evolution do that? Right. I mean, that would certainly give a survival benefit. All of your offspring would certainly become the dominant race if you don't die of old age or at least died of old age maybe after a thousand years. So apparently he doesn't, he's unfamiliar with telomerase and telomeres and the clock that's in each cell. And so I'm guessing that during our conversation of on evolution, where we were talking about some of the problems with evolution, we must have referred to that and saying that, look, evolution could do something very easy that would increase survivability, and that is let each organism live longer. I mean, some sure. organisms live incredibly short lifespans of, you know, just a few days. Right. And yet they're reproducing rapidly. If they lived, say, 10 times longer, they would produce, you know, 5 to 10 times as much offspring and would have an, a, a tremendous survival advantage right. over the other competing organisms in its species. So... I'm thinking off the top of my head of the average housefly. I, if I have this correct, I believe the housefly only lives for about two or three days. Right. And yet yeah. they have thousands and thousands, they lay thousands and thousands of eggs in those couple of days. But could you imagine if they lived for 20 years? Right, exactly. 
I mean, there'd be, there'd be flies all over the place. Right. We so, wouldn't be able to walk through the flies. <laughs> right. That incredible survival of the, the fittest benefit that would be provided. And it is as simple as turning on or off this clock or even just extending the number of telomeres that are present in the cell. Right. So, so I guess he just doesn't understand how this clock mechanism works. And maybe for some of our listeners, we'll just briefly talk about it. The, every cell in your body and every cell that's in a living thing, animals and plants, have a clock mechanism. And what this does is it provides for cells to replace themselves after they become damaged. Now, every cell, even though it's becoming damaged, it has repair mechanisms, and so a cell is going to repair itself on a constant basis. Eventually, though, even the repair mechanisms become damaged. Mm-hmm. So the cell can no longer replace it or repair itself. At that point, what the cell does is it tells the stem cell for that particular tissue to make another one of it. So it, it produces a copy of that cell and pushes it up through the tissue. So then the dying cell goes through a process called apoptosis in which the parts are scavenged and used for the rest of the organism. And so this could theoretically continue forever. But what happens is that every time the stem cell makes a copy of itself, it snips off one of the telomeres. And so if there are 50 telomeres at the end of the chromosomes that it's copying, it has 50 times that it will copy itself, make a new cell, reproduce. Right. And after that, when it gets to the end, it says, okay, no more reproduction, no more replacing cells. So you get to the situation where there's a damaged cell. It can no longer repair itself. So it sends messengers to the stem cell saying, I need a replacement. And this, the stem cell simply doesn't replace it. So the damaged cell just has to, and the, at this point, the cell is what we call senescent, or basically old. Right. And the senescent cell then just has to continue. It won't go through the series of apoptosis because there's nothing to replace it. So it doesn't go through apoptosis, and it will just continue to try to, repla- to repair itself as best it can. Right. But eventually, it can no longer repair itself, and the more and more tissue, the more and more cells in your body or each tissue that build up like that, the more and more susceptible you are to disease and cancer and all kinds of problems, and that's why you wind up dying of old age. That's what old age is. Right. It's each individual cell getting uh, old and no longer being able to be replaced with a fresh new cell. This kind of so, reminds me of of. Uh I've you know I've read that the uh, the your skin um, replaces itself. I think if I have this right, it said that uh, what I read said that the uh, like taking the entire um, skin covering of a human being replaces itself completely every seven years. Yeah, okay? there you go. That's but exactly when right. you're when you're like a young person. You know, you don't have any wrinkles, you don't have any age spots. I mean, you know, you're like perfectly reproducing yourself. But then you get to a point where you're not doing that anymore and your skin gets older and older and older because it's not reproducing itself the way it did 
earlier. That's right. Which yeah, is basically that's right. Um, because of these these little time clocks that you're talking about, there's timers in there that are saying, you know, you you're going to reproduce yourself perfectly to a certain point, and then you're going to start to break down. That's right. And there's nothing we can do about that, at least not so far. <laughs> That's right. Now, yeah, theoretically, you we may in the future be able to go in and turn off that timer mechanism, in which case the stem cell would just continue to reproduce itself ad, ad infinitum. infinitum. Do you think we'll ever get to that point? Uh, we may. We're actually, I mean, they are working on that uh, very hard. So we may get to that point where, you know, you can take a pill and you're going to live a couple hundred years longer. Of course, that assumes that we don't blow ourselves up first. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it just goes to the point, the reason why this is evidence against evolution is because if evolution were true, it would be such a simple thing to turn that switch. Right. Why right? hasn't Just, it done it? Why hasn't it done that? Exactly. And in fact, you do sometimes see detrimental effects of this clock mechanism being damaged. So there's a disease called progeria that you can have, you can give birth to a child that has one-tenth as many telomeres. And what happens is that they wind up dying of old age by the time they're 12 years old. I've, I've seen examples of that. Right. And they, so at 10 years old, they're suffering from all the diseases of old age. You know, they have arthritis and their hair's gray and falling out. And, right. You know, it's just really sad and they're only 10 years old. Right. But, but isn't it interesting is, that we have no examples of the opposite of that system getting messed up and somebody living to be 300 years old? Well, I think we do have examples of it in the Bible. The Bible talks about people who live to be 900 years okay. uh, old. And that's easily explained by having longer telomeres. Right. So, And you simply would live for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, of course, uh, these were generations that were farther back and not as far removed from the first couple as we are. So they, that would explain why they may have had more telomeres than we do. Right. And, and actually, there's also this concept of the founder's population or a bottleneck where the, if the population is suddenly reduced and somebody in that population has a genetic defect, it's very likely that that or it's very possible for that genetic defect to become established in the later population. So, and what does the Bible say? That the population of the earth was reduced to eight people. Now, if one or two of those eight people had this damaged gene that allowed, that caused shorter telomeres, then over time, by what's called genetic drift, that gene could establish itself and become fixated in the population, the new population. Wow. And what do we see when we examine the text of the Bible? We see this decay curve, and, and this is, you know, it, it's obvious that no ancient author made up this decay of lifespan because it happens to follow a mathematically precise decay curve. Huh. But the de decay curve is just exactly what you would expect to see if genetic drift were occurring and this detrimental mutation which caused telomeres to be shortened was slowly becoming the prominent gene become fixated in the population of human beings. Wow. And in fact, that's what we do see. That's so, really interesting. Yeah. 
So again, you know, the Bible is shown to be true in everything that it says, and evolution is shown to be false, this uh, idea of macroevolution. Right. We're not getting better and better. We're actually deteriorating with each generation. That's right. So, And not only just because of the telomeres, but also because of these genetic mutations that we're adding. Every generation is adding between 300 to 600 new mutations, of which between one and three are detrimental. So there's simply no hope for any life on Earth to succeed without going extinct. Wow. So it's all just a matter of time for us, huh? Yes, it is. <laughs> and like well, I said, that's assuming we don't blow ourselves up first. <laughs> that's right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about an email that we received from Nick from Bristol, who is challenging us on some of our past podcasts about evolution. And he's written out three pages of evidence against our position. So when we're just about done with it, we're going to finally wrap it up with, the, it looks like, his last paragraph. Okay, this is about reversion to ancestral types. He says, I suspect this argument only applies to domesticated animals, where separation from the wider gene pool has only been for a short time from the evolution perspective. Also, separation may not be complete, and crossbreeding may occasionally occur. Now, my response to that was uh, crossbreeding doesn't really occur naturally in nature. Only man artificially initiates crossbreeding. And interestingly enough, he uses his brain and intelligent design to do it. Got that? <laughs> oh, no, actually, you dropped out. I, I must have lost the connection. Oh, okay. Um, well, I just read that last paragraph, and, and my... my uh, uh, response to him uh, about crossbreeding was that crossbreeding doesn't occur naturally in nature. Only okay. man artificially initiates crossbreeding, and he uses his brain and intelligent design to do it. There you go. So you go. trying to say that, uh, you know, there's no design to nature is really uh, contradictory. Now, he, uh, go ahead and finish that last sentence that he says, too. Yes, he says, you used the example of a flu virus. Can you explain to me the difference between a wild flu virus and, what, a domesticated virus? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so we were talking about the reversion to ancestral type and how this is an antithesis to the idea of evolution. Right. Because this was well known by Darwin and other geneticists of the time that you very frequently will see how you might be breeding pigeons, for instance, and then within a, just a generation, they will revert back to the ancestral type. Right. And so I mentioned that this is a common phenomenon. And so basically, you see, this just makes it much, much harder for evolution to proceed because the different organisms at different times will revert back to previous ancestral types, and you make no progress. Well, do, so, isn't this what's happening with fruit flies? We do all this genetic playing around with fruit flies, but they eventually go back to being the original fruit flies again. Right, because all of the changes that we've made have all been bad or neutral. Right. So, And we mentioned this specialist at the University of Pennsylvania uh, that I had a opportunity to go listen to who works on the flu virus and the way they determine which virus they're going to generate for the next year is by looking at which strain of flu virus is closer to the wild type. 
Now, he makes this joke, or I guess he just doesn't understand. He thinks that we're talking about wild type as opposed to some kind of domesticated flu virus. I mean, uh-huh. you know, so, so uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if he's just trying to be funny or if he just really doesn't understand. Uh, but no, the wild type, that is a typical terminology. It doesn't mean not domesticated. It means the most common strain of flu. Right. So, and that's the wild type. That's the native type. And just as you can recognize native types of pigeons, native types of dogs, native types of pigs or cattle or anything that you might be trying to select, if you put selective pressure on these organisms and try to develop a different strain or type of organism, frequently what the natural tendency of those organisms uh, is to do is to go back to the wild type or the original kind. Right. So when you, stop, again, when you stop messing around with them, they go back to what they were. That's right. So again, very strong evidence against evolution and for the theory of intelligent design and creation. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks, Kirk, for joining us again. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Please send us your comments or your questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please include the call letters of the station that you listen to us on. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.